This episode of CCA is brought to you by Like a Pet Food and stamped with Paul's paw of approval. Probably too often we try and like follow a path that is set by our parents or by society or by other external pressures. But I think it's really important to actually ask yourself that and really deeply think about what success looks like for you. What I really focus on is sort of trying to just rise straight through the middle. So not letting the lows really impact me. I think that also translates to me sometimes probably not celebrating the highs as much as I should. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. Hello, lovely neighborhood. Firstly, thank you all so much again for the anonymous Q&A submissions. They were such a fun episodes to record, as you could probably hear. Like I always say, it really can be so hard to stop, step back from the day to day and actually reflect on things that deeply. So I'm so grateful for you guys giving me the opportunity every time we do a Q&A and for also just being so genuinely curious and polite. Other people I know will never be doing an anonymous Q&A again, adding that kind of shield against your identity. I think uh, led to not necessarily a fun time for everyone, but you guys are just the best and I really don't take that for granted. So thank you so much. Now to our guest today. I'm so excited to introduce you to Anna Podolsky for so many reasons. The parallels in parts of our stories, her amazing business because the products are actually incredible, but also because her work involves floofy puppies and that's just the biggest yay of all. After immigrating from the Ukraine, Anna has been a successful professional gymnast, an international management consultant with the prestigious Bain & Co working around the world, and now founder of a booming pet food startup like a pet food, changing puppers' lives from the inside out. She has some fascinating insights about the influence of immigrant parents on choosing your pathway, living and working overseas, and a shared passion with my own passion for languages, plus starting a business when you stumble upon a gap in the market, then grow it to an empire of over a hundred staff and counting. She is incredible. Anna is humble, intelligent, and so interesting. And I hope you guys enjoy this one as much as I did. Anna, welcome to Seize the Yay. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I mean, we get to talk dogs, which is like my favorite topic in the world. So I'm so excited to get into this. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a fun hour. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into your story, which I cannot wait to dive into, the first question I love to start every episode with is a little bit of an icebreaker. And I think one of the things that happens when you're a founder and you have a story and a business and a product is that often people get introduced to your identity at this stage in your life, but forget that, you know, behind the gloss of running a business and having beautiful products and and this beautiful, like polished exterior identity that there's, we're all just like normal people who do very down to earth things behind the scenes. So first question for you is what's something relatable about you or just really <laughs> normal that you do in your life? What's really relatable? Well, I love plants, but I'm like not the best plant mom. So I, I do kill some <laughs> and it makes me really sad. I think there's a few pots in particular that must be like jinxed or cursed or something because most of them do okay, but then there's some that just, yeah don't make it very far. I'm trying. <laughs> I love how it's it's a jinx or a curse. It's not nothing to do with your I, level of nurturing or be, skill or no. Can't be the water, <laughs> can't be anything else. <laughs> <laughs> I think plant mumhood is like a serious business. I just like you've got to keep those babies alive. Yeah, it's, it's a big effort, um, big commitment, but so worth it. I was similar. Like I didn't you know, know anything about them. But then I went zero to hero and then suddenly bought like a hundred in lockdown. And the problem is more of them survived than I thought were going to survive. And now I'm like, okay, so now I've just like volunteered myself for this upkeep all the time forever. 
So it is like a child. (laughs) I'm sort of in this pattern now where the ones that are thriving, they're sort of growing and outgrowing their pots. So sort of buying new pots, trends, like, you know, moving them to the new ones. But then I have all these smaller ones that are empty. So you need to go get more ones. And it's sort of this really kind of exploding family now, (laughs) quickly running out of space. And repotting is like advanced. I'm like, that's full on. That's like proper green thumb. (laughs) As as I mentioned, not always successful, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's jump into your story. As I mentioned before, I think there's so many chapters in your life before the one where people tend to sort of meet you in now and forget that often the pathway wasn't straightforward and most of the time definitely not smooth. So I'd love to go back to all the way back to your childhood actually to sort of look at what you thought you'd be, what were the first things you gravitated towards. I know you sort of had a a very early first career as a professional gymnast. I was a ballerina when I was younger. So that young like discipline and and dedication I think really shapes your attitude towards work later in life but yeah talk us through what you were like as a kid what what school was like how you balanced gymnastics and and yeah what you thought your first jobs would be yeah look I guess like first of all I immigrated to Australia so my family is from Ukraine and we came over here when I was really young so I think that did shape me a lot and you know that whole immigrant family where my mum was really keen that we all got a really good education, you know, had good jobs, didn't have to worry about financial side of things. So I always felt like this huge sense of responsibility. And I think that really shaped me to be really disciplined and motivated and sort of, yeah, like quite focused even as a kid. And so I think I was pretty diligent, like both on the school side, but also, yeah, with my gymnastics and sort of making sure I balanced both and sort of tried my really hardest at that. I also really loved animals, even from when I was a kid. Like every photo of me, I'm holding like a dog or a cat or, you know, something. (laughs) So I actually wanted to be a vet for most of my childhood. And I almost ended up studying it at uni, but I just couldn't do like the blood and the needles. (laughs) Like I'm the type of person when I got my COVID vaccine, I fainted. Like I'm, I'm just so bad at all of that. So the vet path wouldn't have worked. Yes, bit yeah. of a barrier. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much to unpack here already and we're not even at the start of your working life yet. But I mean, you know, coming here as an immigrant and how that shapes your identity and, and then the professional gymnast career at such a young age and like showing leadership from so early as well. I saw you co-founded the Rhythmic Gymnastics team your school and then, you know, took the school to other competitions, winning threes in a row and remaining a top school to this day, like really leaving a legacy and and then choosing a career and going to university. But firstly, how did you decide, at what kind of junction did you decide you weren't going to do gym full time and that wasn't going to be your forever career but you you know you go to university instead yeah it was a really big part of my life for a long time um so you know 10 plus years growing up and ultimately for me probably came back to like my family values and my parents sort of you know wanting me to go to uni and get a job whereas when you know with gymnastics your career sort of peaks when you're you know maybe 18 or 20 and then at 25, you're sort of considered a grandma in that sport. Over the hill. <laughs> exactly, right, or downhill from there. So that was sort of, um, you know, my family really driving me to pursue that. And, yeah, like at the same time, I think my body towards the end was just I was getting injured all the time. Like it really takes a, a toll on you. So mm. I just don't think it's the healthiest thing to do for a long time either. Yeah, it can be a short-lived career even at its longest. So so choosing to go to university then, how did you pick your combination of degrees? I think this is such an interesting choice, a Bachelor of Commerce and a Bachelor of Science. You often see one or the other combined with something else, but seeing them together, it's I think when we make this choice at that age in our life, we often think there are only a few jobs that exist. (laughs) Everything that we choose has to make sense for kind of what we're going to do for our forever job. So (laughs) what did you actually think that they would translate to? I I think it's so cool that you did a major in mathematics. Like what did you think that that would allow you to do in your life? Yeah. And I think that's exactly that. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was trying to leave my options as open as possible. Like, yeah, it wasn't going to be that, but I didn't want to end up in a, um, doing a course that had a really predetermined outcome as to what 
that career would be. So something like, you know, if you study physio, you're probably going to be a physiotherapist. There's not much other optionality beyond that. So my goal was to try and keep it as broad as possible and sort of study something that would give me quite transferable skills. And maths kind of came into it again, like from the family side of things. Actually, both my parents have PhDs in maths. Oh, Really like quantitative family. And I've always, like my brain kind of thinks that way as well. I'm really more of a numbers thinker than like a words thinker. Mm-hmm. So even at school, I was always, you know, really quite good at it and enjoyed it. So that was sort of that side. And then with the commerce, I guess I wanted to add a bit more kind of breadth and maybe real world application to that math side. So in the end, I thought the two degrees, like they really did balance each other out mm. and did give me a lot of optionality, which was exactly what I was after. It's just so fascinating. I think it's just such a, a unique combination and obviously has led to you being able to do so many different things with so many transferable skills. I feel like math is that thing at school that we're like, I'm never going to use that. But then, you know, you actually use it so much in everyday life. You mentioned a couple of times that with your, obviously, your parents being maths PhDs, like that's extraordinary and wanting you to make the most of sort of where you are. One of the things I find that's a big factor when people are trying to figure out what they want to do and who they want to be is family pressure, whether it comes from them or from yourself to sort of make them proud or how did you navigate that, you know, wanting to make the most of everything they they'd done to bring to Australia, but also wanting to find your own way. Like I think a lot of people struggle with that part of their identity. Yeah. And it's a hard one, right? Because they sort of want the best for you and are trying to steer you in in an attempt to do that. And at the same time, when you're that age and still like really, I guess, inexperienced and then don't know much about the world or like, you know, careers or anything like that, you are quite guided and I think it tends to like your parents opinions and thoughts tend to shape you quite a bit I don't know like I I was always really independent and sort of yeah like an independent thinker maybe a little bit stubborn (laughs) I always even if my parents did shape me or kind of try and shape the direction I was always really conscious in the choice myself so in the end I quite enjoyed that guidance because you know I just didn't know what I didn't know um, and having yeah. that, yeah, that kind of experience lens or just other viewpoints I found really helped me. I like that perspective that you can kind of be independent and be influenced by the guidance they're giving you and the values they sort of have that are around you because I think some people feel like they're totally mutually exclusive. They sit at other ends of the spectrum and they don't know how to balance it. But I think you can kind of bring it in together in the middle somewhere. Yeah, yeah I think so. So. As I mentioned before, you know, commerce and science are so broad, but then the real world application, especially when you're at uni, you don't know what jobs exist. I used to think like five different careers existed and there was nothing in between. It's really hard to then know like who you want to be, what are you going to become? The years you have at uni aren't very long to figure that out. And most of the time, the pathway you end up on is completely different to what you expected. So was management consulting the first thing you went into? And how did you even find out about that? And tell us about Bain & Co. Yeah, look, I, I had no idea all through uni as well. Like you're right, it's so hard when you have such a limited time to sort of figure it out. And and I think in a sense, what you learn at uni is so far removed from what you actually do day to day in a job. So it, it's really hard to connect those dots. I actually initially did some internships and worked in actuarial space, and yeah, really enjoyed that. Like I, I love the data side, but I was still keeping my options quite broad as I went into looking for graduate jobs. And with Bain, it was actually quite accidental. I, I had no idea what management consulting was. They were just at uni for the day doing a, a presentation and, and I came across it and was straight away really drawn to the that type of work. Like I loved that it sort of took the really data-driven and sort of you know logical thinking, problem-solving side of things, but then had this really tangible impact to business problems, business results, and ultimately, you know, the people who, who drive those businesses. So I went into the you know, recruitment process, which was really intense. We actually, they flew us down to Melbourne and 
we were there for a week and it, um, I think every day was two interviews and you sort of made it through to the next day or you went home if you didn't. Oh. Um, so it was a really intense process, but like through that, you get to learn so much um, about the, the company and, and the role and meet so many people. And by the end of it, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I was so sold. And I ended up taking the job. I was at Bain for around five years absolutely amazing time. I feel so grateful to have worked with so many just really incredibly smart people, really interesting business problems. Mm. And also the travel was fantastic. I didn't spend that much time in Australia. I spent most of my time <laughs> yeah, in US, South America, yeah, various like, you know, working in different languages as well, a lot of different industries and, and capabilities. So yeah. it kind of stuck to my theme of keeping things broad because... <laughs> <laughs> like I still didn't really know what I wanted at that point. I actually think I often say, you know, I chose law because it it opens more doors than closes them. But if there's any career launch pad that literally opens any door you want, except for maybe medicine, because you probably have to do a medical degree before you become a doctor, it's management consulting. Like every single person I know who has either started there or gone to one of the big management consulting firms in the middle of their career, it's just launched them into like the most transferable skills, your intimate understanding of business, the cross board, like you kind of cover everything. The opportunities to work overseas are incredible. And I mean, most management consultants still can't actually explain to you what they do, but that's the exciting part that it is so <laughs> broad and diverse that, you know, you're using so many different skills. And so I want to talk about the expat experience of living overseas, but also your proficiency in languages. So I've studied lots of languages and think that that opens up a different perspective on humanity and the way the world works. And you're fluent in English, Russian, Spanish, and Portuguese. And I also think it ties into, I don't know about you, but when I was younger being an an Asian Australian, I kind of used to suppress the things that made me different. You want to fit in and you want to be the same. But as I got older, I realized the abilities and heritage and language skills that that are different are actually what make me special. And now I kind of am, you know, at the other end of the spectrum. So that's five questions in one. I'm so sorry. What's wrong with my brain today? I'm like, I'm so excited to be talking to you. What, that international element of your work and using your languages and then also how your identity kind of comes out and being able to use your Russian, you know, things like that. How did that unravel for you? Yeah. International experience. I mean, yeah, it's so eye-opening. I think Australia is just, you know, it's a really small country and quite a homogenous country in the grand scheme of things. So I, I really enjoyed that experience of working, yeah, just coming at problems from completely different angles and, and sort of even the scale of, of the businesses as well, like particularly working in US where you just don't see that scale of, of kind of company and by that re- regard business problem as you do there. And as part of that, of course, integrating and, and sort of learning more about um, various cultures and so forth as well. I totally hear on the point you made earlier around kind of that suppression of, of your identity and, and kind of different culture. Um, I, I definitely did that as well when I was, you know, particularly at primary school, even at high school where really it's around trying to fit in and, and sort of, you know, not be too different. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like same as you, I've come to really appreciate that diversity and uniqueness, not only myself, but also in others. I think it's something that we should really be celebrating, you know, and definitely learning languages as part of that. Mm. I really love languages. Like for me, I think it's kind of like my math brain talking a bit, but I kind of think of it as like various, like, patterns and you know ways of kind of you know structuring logic and and making things fit together and I just really enjoy the process like I can almost feel a different side of my brain working when I'm learning or like speaking another language and part of working in South America when I was living in Chile I ended up like ramping up in Spanish and having to work completely in that language. (gasps) So everything from emails to like presentations, meetings, you know, slide decks, all in Spanish and no better way to learn a language than just be thrown in the deep end um, like that (laughs) and just, yeah, have to figure it out on the fly. But love the experience. Oh, I think it's 
the same as what you said, you know. I see it as patterns as well, which is why I think once you've learned one, it's a bit easier to learn every other language you learn because you've got that ability to see where the verb, the, you know, subject, object and verb go. And I don't know, it's like the building blocks, you just reorientate them for each language. But I also feel like it teaches you so much about a culture, the way a people as a population think because of the way they order things or the way they treat the tenses, you know, you actually learn yeah. so much about how they see the world based on the way their language is structured. I nerd out about that stuff so much. It yeah. makes me so excited. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Like the feminine, masculine, like it's yeah. just the construct is, yeah, so different. And when you're you're speaking it, so it's like in your subconscious all the time and that for sure has a, you know, plays out into influencing behavior and culture and things like that day to day. Yeah. And I mean, like how eye-opening to live in those cultures and bring that back. I kind of see travel as that one of those experiences that stretches your brain so much it can never go back to its old dimensions. Like you can never mm-hmm. not become a, a a deeper, more worldly person by every travel experience, but it can get very tiring and inevitably you might want to come and, you know, settle and not be traveling so much and, and set up a base. But one of the things I find really interesting about you is so much of your journey has been because you are multi-passionate and because you you have so many interests and not necessarily one thing has screamed at you like, you should do this career path. Your career has enabled you to kind of keep doing all the things, like work across all different businesses in all different countries. How did you end up figuring out what your specific purpose was? I think it's really difficult when you have lots of interest because then, you know, what do you choose? It's hard to specify. It's hard to choose one project that you're really joyful about. And, you know, I don't think you would have ever grown up thinking you'd end up with a pet food startup. Like how did this all happen? <laughs> no, not, not of my wildest dreams. I mean, that was always like at, at Bain, that was always the gap for me was that fulfillment, like maybe more than the purpose led fulfillment because, you know, when you're working for these really big corporates, you can only get so excited about, you know, improving costs by 0.5% or you know, what kind of impact are you actually making? Yeah. And so pretty early on in my career, I knew that I wanted to start a startup. I just love the idea of sort of building something from nothing. It's probably mm. you know, ties to my gymnastics days, like building up the, the team there. And yeah, like the I really enjoy the leadership side of things as well. So I knew I wanted to build something, but I, I didn't know what, but I had sort of a set of guardrails where it was industries or areas that I was passionate about, which was essentially like wellness, health, pets, animals. <laughs> yeah. um, although that was sort of further down the line. So I'm like, surely like what, I guess I just didn't know what the opportunities were in that space. And at the same time, I sort of went about really trying to think about problems that I was experiencing in my life, because I, I definitely think that if you are more personally attuned to that, like you are the customer and you live that problem, I think it just becomes such a good base to to build an idea and ultimately a company on. Absolutely. And yeah, so I was, you know, I was living overseas, I was traveling. Of course, this is where like Laika comes into the picture, my my dog. (laughs) So I've had her since she was six weeks old. She's almost 13 now. I've read that she traveled around to all these places, like she came everywhere. Yeah, she did. Um, Little travel bunny. (laughs) She's been to more countries than my sister, which is absolutely (laughs) wild. (laughs) My sister's catching up now. I think COVID didn't help with that but yeah so like through that process you have to kind of you know take her to vets in different countries buy her products buy her food and I was starting to be you know because I I love her want to take the best care possible and I'm really particular about you know how I care for her so in in, trying to buy her food in different languages for example I was kind of paying more attention to the labels yeah like translating them from say Spanish to English and then like being like hang on like I don't even understand this in English and so that sort of led me down a rabbit hole of researching pet food and you know I, I watched a few documentaries like really just quite shocked at what I discovered um it such a murky industry. I mean, 
prior to the 1950s and 1960s, dogs used to eat predominantly home-cooked food. That industry was very much, you know, came to life after World War II when there was this whole movement to more convenience-based foods Mm. and and more processed foods. And so, yeah, quite shocked at what uh, I was feeding her. That ultimately led me to start cooking for her myself. And, yeah, like... (laughs) pampered little baby <laughs> yeah well like not not even though because yeah yeah just basic that, needs <laughs> yeah it, it's just it should just be the baseline um yeah and you know back then she was also experiencing health issues and to be fair a lot of these things are normalized but should be really really itchy all the time she would be shedding so much the point that she'd have bald patches um like <gasps> on her body on her legs her teeth were really bad so the vet said you know we'll have to start pulling them out soon and she was you know only four or five at the time so it it just it didn't really add up for me but then the cool thing was once I started feeding her you know human food her health within weeks just transformed the itching reduced the shedding reduced friends were commenting how much more energy she had Uh, even (gasps) her teeth got better so yeah we I mean we didn't look back for her since then and then it kind of clicked like it all started kind of clicking into place because I'm like hang on if she's eating this and she's doing so well but it's also taking up like a huge chunk of my time like surely this has to exist somewhere and you know it, it didn't and but it should <laughs> like it makes sense and, and sort of running the business model this is what I call a gap in the market yeah exactly. I found one. Market <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, you know, then doing the business model and sort of all the economics were stacking up as well. There's so many, you know, in Australia alone, there's close to 10 million dogs and cats. And it's estimated that 80% eat a processed diet. Whoa. A lot of dogs and cats that could be, you know, eating eating healthier options. That is just amazing. Like, I love what you said before. I often mention the idea that, you know, things don't often make sense until you are further down the journey and you look backwards, like the dots often don't connect until much later, but they they are connecting, but you just can't see it until you look backwards. And you mentioned before, like you had no idea this was all working out, but looking backwards, not only your business experience and Bain being about solving problems and filling gaps, but I was reading that you'd already been like an RSPCA and pet rescue consultant years before this idea (laughs) came up. And then you were just so perfectly positioned for this to be the next chapter, even the fact that you know those statistics about the market. Most business founders, when they first put together an idea, don't actually research the market because, you know, you're a consultant, you're able to do that. And it's obviously enabled this huge success. You've gone from like DIY, which I want to talk about as well, like doing it all yourself just to get this off the ground to like a hundred staff and it's a new company. And I think it's just so exciting when people, when you do watch the story and you can see everything falling into place, like this is what she's supposed to be doing. (laughs) And like also seeing how your relationship with success in that time is also changing. Like Bain is the pinnacle. It's this huge company with huge opportunities and lots of travel and, and so many markers of success. But the missing piece was starting to be purpose. And I think that's also a big lesson that things serve you for one chapter, but then you might start to feel like a few jigsaw puzzle pieces are starting to be missing. So you go in search of what the next thing is. And I think that's part of seizing the A, that it looks different at every chapter. Yeah. And look, I think success is an interesting word as well, because like, what is success? And I think that's something that probably too often we try and like follow a path that, you know, is set, yeah, say by our parents or by society or by other external pressures. But I think it's really important to, to actually ask yourself that and really deeply think about what success looks like for you. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely what I've done through the Leica journey where, you know, leaving Bain and kind of going into this <laughs> this one person startup. <laughs> like pretty big call and yeah like I think part of what made me have the confidence to do that was just following my own path Mm. and doing like what I truly wanted to do versus like any sort of expectation of you know of success that was placed externally yeah that's actually how the this show started was that seize the day represented me chasing goals but which is great and there's nothing wrong with that but chasing goals that I didn't really care about and then realizing yeah. oh my gosh I'm chasing the wrong thing I'm if I seize the yay then like 
everything else kind of falls into place. It's just I was, yeah, the equation was all the wrong way around. And I, I love watching that happen in other people's journeys because there's often a moment where it all starts to sort of come together. But one thing I get asked about the most, so I'd love to ask you about it, is in that process of realizing you could leave and this could, you know, it's a big enough idea to be something, how do you choose when is the right time? How do you combat that? You know, there is an element of self-doubt and and fear and imposter syndrome, but also like how am I going to sustain myself? Could it fail? <laughs> and and leaving the prestige of a big corporation and the safety. Like when do you jump? How do you know how to? And And then you're doing everything yourself that you've never done before. Like what was that like for you? What was the timeline? Yeah. So – me being me, I try to de-risk that jump as much as possible. <laughs> because yeah, like it's a big one, right? And all these things about how am I going to finance my life and pay my rent? Like they're yeah. real. <laughs> I'll walk away from that. So for my initial year, I actually did um, some private consulting work on the side and then sort of, yeah, built the business in parallel. Looking back, I think that was definitely the right thing to do because it sort of, yeah, just gave that extra bit of, you know, cushion and padding during that period where it was all still a lot of unknowns Mm. in saying that it made for a really, really busy time because I was, yeah, essentially, you know, working two jobs. (laughs) So it was more than one job, but yeah, so there was sort of definitely that downside, but yeah, it's hard because in general, I just don't know if there's ever a right time. It's sort of, I feel up to you to make the right circumstances there mm. so, such that you can make that jump. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one thing to say, don't work for the man, go and start your own job, like leave now. But at the same time, people have dependence and different levels of debt and exposure and, and all those kinds of things. And I think there is a temptation to leave straight away, but at the same time, you don't necessarily have a full-time load of work when your business is first starting anyway, plus that that de-risking element. I stayed for six months and I could have probably left it too, but I thought Mm -hmm. like I want to jump to something that's bigger than it is right now and has more momentum, plus I'll have more savings behind me. It's a juggling act that, you know, you really need to reflect on. And I probably was a bit too gung-ho when I first made the jump myself, like encouraging other people, like, do it now. Like you don't want to live with regret. And now I'm like, (laughs) think about your finances first. Another thing that comes up quite often in in the founder journey is comparison and how, you know, there's the the negative self-talk in general can get, you know, quite crippling in terms of actually putting yourself out there. But then also when it's a market where you're not first to market in terms of there is a pet food market, it already exists. How did you stay focused on what you were doing and, you know, why is Leica different and how did you focus on that and not kind of get distracted by, oh, my God, but they're doing this and they're doing that and I want to do that and, you know, it's a, it's like such a hard place to be. Yeah, and I think comparison like naturally comes into play for if you're really competitive like I am, I'm competitive. <laughs> like I just, I don't know, I just want to win. <laughs> and that naturally like positions you to be comparing yourself to other people. I think what we've done well at Leica, and I, I don't know if this was a, a conscious choice to be fair, but we're really focused on ourselves internally and we're mm-hmm. really focused on our customer. I sort of have always looked at our customers as, you know, the the voice of truth, really mindful of, you know, their feedback, just trying to do right by them. And naturally, by focusing on your customer, you tend not to look at other competitors or other players in the market. I think that that has really contributed to our ability to grow and build a, a great product. My strong view is that if you're looking at competitors or others, you're, you're looking at the past. You should be thinking about your customer and sort of, you know, 10 steps ahead as to how you're going to delight them. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a fine line between wanting to look at your competitors so you understand the landscape, but then not getting so distracted that you can't focus on what you're doing and what you're doing in your lane and doing that best. 
Lovely neighborhood. you'll hear more about it in this episode, but founders are so notoriously humble and I need to sing the praises of Anna's incredible Like a Pet Food. If you follow me at all, you'll know our little Paul is a bit of a sensitive sausage, so can't eat particular foods. And Anna's fur baby, Laika, is the same, leading her to create a life-changing range of freshly cooked food that is so natural even we could eat it. Although when Paul's around, there's never any leftovers. Did you know that dry kibble has a shelf life of up to three? Three years? Anna has seen so many dogs experience difficulties on highly processed diets, but then flourish after swapping to human grade natural foods. So, Lyca aims to help transform the pet food industry and puppers' lives from the inside out with easy meal plans customized to your fur baby delivered to your door for free. You can do full or half sizes. You can even sniff it out to start with a starter box or pause your subscription at any time. It is super flexible. And Anna has so generously given the able. 20% off your first Lyca box. Just use YAY20 at the checkout. Note that this code cannot be used in conjunction with any other offer. I will pop the link in show notes. My recommendation is you give it a try. Now back to the episode. But you've also gone from, you know, literally doing everything yourself, which is such a clear, I feel like it's such a cliche to be like, I'm starting my garage doing it all myself, but it's because everyone does it that way. <laughs> but then to now a hundred staff. So what was your first product and how did you decide like to launch with one product versus the subscription you have now? Like how do you actually ease into things and what did that look like? Like what was the first product, for example? Yeah, we launched with our meals, so our lightly cooked meals. It was always a subscription from day one, um, <gasps> but only two recipes. We had a beef and a chicken. Were you cooking those yourself? Yes, yeah. Um, so it started off in my dad's kitchen. He very quickly kicked me out. <laughs> that lasted like a day. <laughs> and then we uh, ended up hiring some benches in, in a shared kitchen space. And then from there, sort of moved on to facilities. And now we have multiple. But yeah, I think I was really conscious about keeping the offering quite simple to begin with. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much complexity already in, in sort of getting a company off the ground that the more simple you can be with your product offering, the more it allows you to sort of iterate easier on that limited offering and sort of get that really right uh, before moving on to expanding. So now we're, yeah, we've got a whole range of meals, we've got a range of treats, we're working on other really exciting things in the next coming months and years as well. So definitely getting that foundation right first is key. Yeah, I love that. I think the temptation is to try and get economies of scale straight away and build your team and get an office and like, you know, you want to obviously perfect your product and be a professional operation. But I think you don't need to launch your entire range straight away. Like you can, you can just nail one thing first. And we had that with Matcha. Like we had one hero for two years because the market really wasn't ready for anything else. And also we weren't able to maintain and concentrate on more than one thing and market more than one thing. So yeah, I think for any aspiring business owners out there, it's important to remember, like you can start smaller than you hope to be. You don't have to go all out straight away and you can kind of grow into it. What have been some of your proudest and like most satisfying or, you know, enjoyable moments in the scale-up process and some of the hardest, most challenging moments or (laughs) mess-ups? Oh, so many of both. Look, I think proudest, I definitely get the most satisfaction and fulfillment when I hear customer feedback. And that sort of brings it all back to me because, you know, that's why I'm doing this. I I love animals. I want them to, I want our dogs to live longer and and live healthier lives. And we get such amazing feedback, like dogs, like switching to Lyca, then being able to reduce their, you know, arthritis medication, (sighs) being able to walk better, um, you know, the itchiness stopping, like all these really cool tangible things of, you know, us improving that dog's life. And that's (sighs) for me what I find the most fulfilling. I, of course, love like, you know, we're very target driven. So we've got lots of milestones that we work together and it's always a great feeling with the team. Like once you kind of hit that target and it's, you know, I think really important to celebrate those wins as well. So we always look at things like, you know, subscriber count, even, you know, moving into a new facility or launching a new product. Like these are really big moments that are really important to celebrate. On the flip side to that, our lowest points, 
gosh, like there's, there's <laughs> problems like every day. It's so hard to, yeah, like that, that's sort of um, running a startup, right? There's always things going wrong. And, you know, most of the time they're fairly small on the grand scheme of things, but it's really hard just to pick one. And, <laughs> just you know, a constant I, mistake. <laughs> yeah. I think for me, part of it is actually not riding that emotional roller coaster because I think that yeah. if you let the lows kind of get you down, you're, you're going to be completely all over the place all the time. So mm. what I really focus on is sort of trying to just rise straight through the middle. So not letting the lows really impact me. I think that also translates to me sometimes probably not celebrating the highs as much as I should. So that's something I'm trying to work on and, and sort of get better at. But yeah, like that's just part of it. (laughs) That's a really good point. Not being so pulled into the emotional side of setbacks or failures, because often your business can't afford you to lose focus for that long. Your team can't afford that. And there is a learning opportunity in every mistake. Even I often go straight to the hypothetical question of like, what worse luck did this bad luck save me from? And so even if you don't actually know how much worse it could have been. There's always a way to word it so that there's a learning opportunity, which helps me just get through the the sort of sadness and embarrassment or awkwardness or whatever I'm feeling about the mistake. It's yeah. resilient, bounce back, get straight back to it, yeah. right? That like that middle zone. But it's funny that you said about not celebrating. I think that's very, very common for people who have just been consumed by building their own business and there's always something else to do. So you don't stop and celebrate the wins. And The difference, I think, in working in a company versus your own business is that the boundaries are already there for you, even at somewhere like Bain where you work really long hours and you're expected to be on your phone and contactable. There's still some sort of like artificial semblance of boundary in your own business. You kind of don't have that. No one's going to make it for you and it's really hard to step back and celebrate the wins and all that kind of thing. Is there anything you miss about corporate? And how have you navigated that boundary question in your sort of business journey? I don't think I miss much about corporate. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> like, like, don't get me wrong, like, I loved it then, but I also really love what I'm doing now and I, I can't yeah. see myself doing anything else. It's funny because I, I kind of like think back to my very first day of doing Wacker and like the first thing that happened was my laptop. I ordered it online, it arrived and then – I couldn't set it up. <laughs> like I, I was having trouble. I'm like, Tam, where, where's our tech team? Like we used to have, um, you know, IT that we could just call off for these things. So it was like a really big jump. But like over time, you get used to it. You do yeah. you know, your laptop issues and things. And yeah, I just love the the autonomy, the flexibility, just having that full control of of what I'm driving to and how. It's fantastic. Um, Of course, that comes with a lot less, yeah, guardrails. And, you know, I, if you're the type of person that does push yourself and sort of work hard, I think it can be hard to, you know, have to be conscious not to take that too far. Yeah. But overall, don't miss too much from corporate. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that leads very nicely to the last section, which is your play TA and how you kind of cultivate your identity outside of the business, which again, without boundaries is very difficult to do. But before we move on from work, I do just want to ask for anyone who's listening, who has a pet, who might be interested in Laika now and considering jumping on board and trying some of the meals, what would you say to them? What should they try? What are your favorite products? And, you know, (laughs) can you buy one off? Is it subscription only? Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, first of all, Laika is lightly cooked meals made out of real food. So very similar to like a dinner that you'd make at home with fresh meat and veggies and other superfoods. It's a subscription product, but we don't have any like time commitment. So you can just order that first box and then pause and cancel straight away. And for the first box, we have a sampler, like a starter box. So it just comes with a smaller amount of meals. So I'd always recommend that, especially if your dog's eating like a processed kibble diet or something like that, and you just want to try it out. In terms of what to order, I recommend getting the full variety of meals. So we have six right now. And that way your pup can just give it a go, try different things. And especially if they're picky, that usually works quite well. And you just want to be careful if your dog's a bit more sensitive, like might have you know digestive issues just staying away from the high fat options so probably like a lamb or a beef might be a bit too rich and more wider options like a fish chicken or turkey there you go to oh my gosh so cute 
Do you get to spend heaps of time with animals at your work or like not as much as you would oh, think? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, heaps. I mean, our office is dog friendly. Um, so Micah <gasps> comes to work every day. I'm, I'm with her 24-7 and, um, yeah, there's dogs around all the time. It's awesome. Oh, my God. That is the best. <laughs> that would make work-life balance so much easier because you just have dogs everywhere. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, it's pretty distracting sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of distraction, I think one of the things that's important, even if you love your job and even if it doesn't feel like work, is to get distracted a little bit because your brain needs downtime, you need distance, you need to refresh, you need rest. Like there are so many, I mean, I say this, I'm not very good at it. I know the theory that we should be doing these things, but what are the things you do that aren't related to what you do at work, like that just Mm -hmm. allow your brain to kind of flake and just play? Mm. I mean, well, Laika, does that count? Yeah, totally. (laughs) I wrote Liker and Billy as like yeah. pointers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Billy's a bunny um, who we adopted a year ago. We, we were sort of looking for a friend for Liker, but she's really she, she's a jealous type. Like she would, it would break her soul if we brought another dog in the family. So that's why <gasps> Bunny came around, and it's very cute. They're the best of friends, and yeah, I like. Yeah, just spending time with them and, you know, either going on a hike or um, the park, even brunch, things like that. Also a really big fan of active recovery. Mm-hmm. I find that doing things like, you know, just watching Netflix or hanging out at home, you sort of sometimes can't switch your mind off work. Yeah. I'm a really big fan of doing something that sort of immerses you completely. And for me, exercise is that. But like more creative forms of exercise. Like I'm not that keen on just running or like, you know, going to the gym and and doing weights. Um, I like more things like yoga and Pilates. I used to do a bit of pole dancing as well, but just don't have the time anymore. Yeah. And started horse riding lessons recently as well. Oh my gosh. Amazing. I love your appetite for just trying lots of different things. I'm really (laughs) similar. I'm just like, you know what? Never been on a horse. Kind of want to ride a horse. Like, let's do it. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to finish up, second last question is what are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation and that like we wouldn't find in other articles or interviews three interesting things so I've kind of a weird diet I'm vegan kind of I do seafood and fish like the pescatarian side and then I'm yep. mostly vegan oh yeah so it's sort of this mix of, you know, doing it for sustainability and trying to reduce my meat intake but also um, for health but yeah I can't really put a yeah, it doesn't really fit into a box. Yeah, I was like pagan <laughs> as in vegan. you only eat bacon? Like <laughs> <laughs> So Yeah, that, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, so that's one. Um another one, I have two dads. So my parents, my mom and my dad got divorced when I was really young and then my mom remarried when I was really young and so I grew up being really close with my stepdad and um yeah, like I literally I call them both my dad, really close to them both. I think it's probably really confusing (laughs) everyone around you (laughs) yeah (laughs) but yeah I feel pretty grateful that I get to have a mom and two dads wow and then what else yeah maybe languages like yeah just coming back to that again I really want to learn a fifth language as well just (gasps) been to find a bit more time to do that what would you learn so tossing up between Italian and Japanese. Oh! Yeah, I did Japanese in primary school, but I, just, I can't forgotten everything. I feel like if you – so my main second language is French and because of that Italian and Spanish were really easy. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if you wanted to learn it quickly, to be like fluent quickly, then Italian. Do you have an Asian – you don't have an Asian language, do you? No. no. Oh, then maybe Japanese. Japanese yeah. <gasps> Just to balance it out. I meant to say to you at the start, Dabro Pajalovit, Yagavaru Paruski. Oh, where did you learn Russian? I don't, though. <laughs> <laughs> I know like a few sentences and that's it. <laughs> that's awesome. What languages do you speak, by the way? So French was the one that I majored in and I did part of my law degree. So similar to you in Spain, I just turned up and was like, um, I wasn't registered as like a foreign language student or anything. And then I was like, why did I do this? I don't understand anything. And then after crying for three months, then suddenly I could just understand everything. So that's my kind of 
most fluent language. Japanese and Chinese were my minors, so I did them to university level, but I've like forgotten everything. English was my first language, so I remember Latin languages a lot more easily. Italian and Spanish, I'm just like, I can read, I can like listen to the TV and then I can have a basic conversation, but I understand more than I can say. And then randomly, my ex was Romanian and that's a Latin language. So I can can kind of speak a little, like, like I can say a lot of conversation-y things. Yeah. And then the one I want to learn, like everywhere we go, I kind of try and learn a few sentences. So we're in Moscow in 2019. But I really want to learn Arabic. Yeah, wow, that that would be a challenge because the, the alphabet's like so completely different to. Yeah, that that's so cool, so impressive. Oh my god, so impressive! You speak five languages <laughs> and like fluently. <laughs> no, mine are like so basic though. Like only one of them I would call fluent. The rest of them are just like for funsies. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> um, I also meant to ask, how has your family been with? Are they here or are they still back in the Ukraine or half half and half? So my immediate family is here, but I do had extended family on both sides back in Ukraine. But luckily everyone's been safe and they're sort of, you know, relatively out of the conflict areas, which is oh, yeah, really good. But, yeah, it's, I mean, it's horrible and it just puts everything into perspective. Mm. Yeah, I feel super grateful that we left when we did. Yeah. And just hope that it all kind of... Um, comes to an end soon. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad to hear that your friends and family are safe and same to anyone listening who has family or friends in the Ukraine, sending all our love from the neighborhood. A little segue back to our very last question for today to leave you on a little bit of a higher note with a bit of yay. What is your favorite quote? My favorite quote. So the one I really love is you overestimate what you can do in a day or a week, but you always underestimate how much you can do in a year, um, let alone a lifetime. I love that. I've never heard that before. I like, I'm obsessed with quotes. I feel like the, oh, sorry, the other language I speak is quote. Like I can (laughs) communicate exclusively back and forth in quotes, but I've never heard that before. That's such a good one. Yeah, I love it because it's just so relevant because you sort of, you try and fit so much in to your day or your week and I think it sometimes can be discouraging when you don't get through all that, but it's like, hang on, that's actually quite normal. Like on that short time horizon, I think you always kind of overestimate and try and do too much, but it's important to sort of zoom out and think about the big picture and, and sort of not lose sight of those bigger goals. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh, Anna, this has been so wonderful. I'm sorry I've been so inarticulate. I don't know what is wrong with me today. I think I'm just so fascinated by your story. <laughs> I understand every word. You're fine. <laughs> I just feel like I've been like blah, blah, blah. The things in my brain are not coming out my mouth. <laughs> but thank you so much for, for sharing your story. Story and and for also topping Paul up with Leica. I'm so excited to see what happens. His skin is a like big recurring issue, so I'm really excited to see what happens. Yeah, fingers crossed. You see um, some some difference, and um, yeah, I mean he's day one now. So I think for Leica it took maybe a couple of weeks. So um, yeah. yeah, be really keen to check in and see how he's doing. I mean, literally when the food arrived, it looked so good. I was like is this human food? Like, it, like could I eat this? Because it looks so beautifully packaged and everything. I'm, I'm really excited. I'll report back. Yeah. And to answer your question, you, you can eat it if you like. I mean, we try it. I've only tried the fish recipe because I don't eat meat, but um, oh, yeah, yeah, of we, course. Do, we do taste test it. And it's it's literally just meat, veg and superfood. So the only thing I'd say is it's a little, it's a little bit bland because we don't do like salt and pepper and spices oh, like you yeah. would on, on you know, your food. But it's, yeah, all filled with the good stuff. Well, thank you so much and I'll keep you posted. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Paul was munching on his like a pet food chicky chews in the background for most of that episode. Gosh, anything involving animals is such a yay for me. And what an amazing story. Anna is such a powerhouse and I loved hearing about the many different ways she's applied her leadership and creativity. She has so generously given the neighborhood 20% off your first like a box if you're keen to try it out for your fur babies, which Paul highly recommends. I'll pop the link in the show notes for you to find out more. As always, if it feels right, please make sure you have subscribed to the show that you share this or any other episode or leave us a little review it only takes a few seconds so we can keep growing the neighborhood as far and wide as possible and snagging up those fabulous guests i hope you're having an amazing week and a seizing your yay